Hello, everyone, and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Everyone thinks, oh, it's just stopping drinking. It's not. It's like relearning, you know, who you are. In this episode of Saturn Returns, I'm joined by the lovely Millie Gooch, author of the Sober Girls Society Handbook, an empowering guide to living hangover free. Now, Millie gave up drinking after a tricky relationship with alcohol that led to years of blackouts, overconsumption and anxiety from the night before, which I can relate to. She founded the Sober Girls Society to find more like-minded people who were trying out sobriety too. Three years later, in January this year, her book was published. Now, I've discussed sobriety on this podcast with a number of people, including Ruby Warrington, who hosts the Sober Curious podcast, and also Catherine Gray, who wrote The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. So I love finding more like-minded people in this community that normalize the conversation around alcohol and living a more sober life. Now, in this episode, we share our personal stories and relationships to alcohol, which you may find triggering. And if you do, you can find support at Alcohol Change UK or contact your local GP. But before we get into this episode with Millie, let's check in with our astrological guide, Nora. Although it's often a Neptune 12th house or Pisces dominant chart that classically depicts escapist behavior in astrology, it's interesting to note that a chart with heavy Saturn or Capricorn or even Aquarius also can create the need to escape as an obvious avoidance of one's natural ability to face reality and all of its pains and triggers. A young Saturnian person, when restricted in freedom of choice or when constantly having to face harsh realities before on Saturn return, might feel the need to escape certain harsh realities or memories away from the public eye, meaning their friends probably won't know about their unhealthy habits till push comes to shove. Whereas a Neptunian person likely won't care whether it's public or not. This is probably why one should always check up on their friends and check up on their mental health especially around the Saturn return. Either way, any of these behaviors could manifest as using alcohol, recreation drugs in an unhealthy way, unhealthy use of social media, unhealthy relationships or work dynamics as a coping mechanism. On the other side of the coin, one also could be dealing with self-restricting behaviors such as eating disorders or other forms of unhealthy self-control. We all go through major Saturn transits every seven years, and so Saturn cyclically tries to remind us of different ways to harness our energy and of coping with reality, healthier coping mechanisms. During Saturn returns, Saturn returns to the same sign it was in when we were born, so at this time it tends to confront us with self-sabotaging behavior in a more stern way. Not because Saturn isn't necessarily wanting to be stern, but rather because it dislikes wasted energy, it dislikes a wasted life. And the very act of escaping and self-sabotage is energetically draining our life force, the very life force Saturn is trying to help us shape and make the most of as we shed any self-sabotaging behavior that might hold us back from entering adulthood with a stable inner foundation and root chakra. Millie, thank you for your patience. Oh, man, it's taken a minute to get us going, hasn't it? It has, but it's fine. 
Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, the audience that doesn't know? Yeah, of course. So my name is Millie. I am 29. And when I was 26, I decided that I was going to stop drinking. So this was because alcohol was really affecting my mental health. So I kind of started my drinking career at university. I always make the joke that I left with a 2-1 in English, but a first in drinking because I was so good at it. And I worked in, you know, a vodka revolutions. I worked in a shop bar. I went to Sussex in Brighton. So there was just like this whole seafront of clubs and bars I could make my, my way through. And then I kind of left uni. I took those blackout binge drinking habits to my jobs in PR and then journalism. And it kind of got slowly and steadily worse. So I would, you know, go out and not remember large portions of my night, sometimes entire portions of my night. I wouldn't, you know, sometimes remember how I got home. And then I started suffering with this real classic fear, fear, anxiety, you know, what did I say? What did I do? You know, did I call my friend a dick? And, you know, all those things that go through your mind, does everyone hate me? And I kind of noticed that I was getting into this real cycle of, you know, weekend binge drinking, feeling slightly better Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then going, oh, it's Thursday. I know what I'll do. Like a goldfish who had forgotten Mm -hmm. the previous weekend. Uh, I'm just going to go out and get really drunk. And that's going to stop my anxiety. And that's going to make me feel better. And I kind of got into this like real cycle. And then towards the end of kind of 2017, I went through a breakup with my ex-boyfriend who I'd been with for six years and I took it very badly. And I did what, you know, we're all taught to do in a breakup, which is go out, drink as much as you can, end up in a kebab shop crying. So that's what I did for a few months. And it just made me feel so much worse. And I was in this like really bad headspace at the time. And I was just miserable. I had all the symptoms of depression. I was always anxious, just felt like my life was kind of on groundhog day. You know, I wasn't happy in my job. I wasn't very productive. And what I should have been doing was spending my weekends, you know, recuperating and resting. And I was just going, you know, as hard as I possibly could. Yeah, exactly. So February, 2018, I went on a night out. I don't really remember any of it. I know there was tequila. I know there was a kebab shop. uh, And apart from that, nothing. And I just woke up the next day and I thought, I just, I can't keep doing this like to myself, to my body, to my mind. Um, I don't feel great. I, I don't enjoy life. I see no joy in anything anymore. And I, weirdly, I always think this was fate. About three weeks before I was on the tube going to work and I picked up a copy of Stylist magazine and there was an interview with Catherine Gray in there. And it was all about um, her new book that was coming out that month and all about her journey with sobriety. And I kind of like mentally put that in the back of my mind. I actually, I took a picture of the article and thought I'm going to read that book. And then, you know, three weeks later, I still hadn't ordered it. But that morning I was like, I'm going to order that book. So I downloaded it on Audible and just listened to it for like the whole day I did the entire book in one day and it just completely changed my perspective on not Mm -hmm. drinking sobriety you know exactly what it says on the tin it's the unexpected joy of being sober and I had never ever thought that there might be joy in sobriety it had only ever been portrayed to me as miserable you know something you were giving up a sacrifice and it never ever been shown to me as a positive 
so I said that day I'm never drinking again, which, you know, I had said about 412 times by this point. So all my friends thought it was hilarious. No one really believed me. And then three years later, I still haven't drunk. So uh, Wow, you haven't drunk at all? No, no, not since that day. So it sounds like it was really easy. Like one day I just decided I wasn't going to drink again and that was it. But, you know, before that I'd done many sober Octobers, many dry January. I tried to give out for Lent at one point. I tried to moderate. So it wasn't just that day. But since that day, I haven't. So, yeah, three years on. I mean, probably from 25, 26 was when I started really like having – massive chunks of time when I wouldn't drink I would abstain completely and then I would fall back into old habits but a big thing for me was I don't have a community of people that encourage that a sober lifestyle like all my friends just get fucked up every weekend that's like I'll have no friends (laughs) (laughs) you know I was like I'll be on my own and to a degree I did feel like there was a, a sort of period of slight isolation but did you find that I guess like not that drinking is cool, but it's like sobriety almost is viewed as a weakness or like you have a problem, therefore like you have to give something up. Yeah, it's it's always looked at as a loss. And even the phrase like giving up, it feels weird. Because, exactly, the language. Yeah, I haven't, yes, I have given up drinking alcohol, but what I have gained, if you could put it all on like a, a physical scale, would far outweigh this this alcohol. It is... It is for me only ever been a gain. So that was one of the reasons. So I was about seven months sober when I started Sober Girl Society because I found exactly the same thing. Everything I looked at, um, especially online, was either very kind of like rooted in AA or it was, you know, the drinkers, as you say. There was nothing that was like in between of kind of a lot of the literature I read as well was very like, you know, stay away from your triggers. Don't go to parties. The first six months you shouldn't even like go around alcohol. Yeah. And I was working in media at the time and I was going to, you know, like work events three, four nights a week. I couldn't just turn around to my boss and be like, sorry, I can't go, which I'm sure they probably would have been supportive of, but I, I didn't feel like I wanted to do that. So I wanted to find more like practical information. I wanted to find people who were like, yeah, actually, you know, I go to fabric until 6am and here's how I do it sober. Like that, that's totally. what I wanted to find. So that's why I set it up as well. And because everything, you know, all the Instagram pages I saw were kind of like dark and heavy and focused on the loss and were very like retrospective. And I just wanted to find something that was like, look, you've given this up. Here's this amazing world that you're now stepping into. And here's all the things that you're going to gain. I think people that I've met in AA, and I did end up in an AA meeting accidentally, which is only something that I could do, which was that I was in LA and I was going to get some food from a supermarket and I met this guy who started like chatting me up, I guess. And he was like, will you come have dinner with me outside? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Why not? And then as we were talking, he's like, I'm actually in recovery. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool and then he's like on my way to a meeting and he's like you're gonna come with me I was like uh, I don't know if that was cool <laughs> like, being very English I just sort of found myself like walking behind him going into it was like in an abandoned school yeah. in Venice I mean you couldn't make it up so anyway we went into this room and there were just all these people in there I was like oh my god and hearing their stories was really for lack of a better word and no pun intended sobering because I was yeah. like oh my god the level it can get to 
where alcohol becomes such a monster in your day-to-day life, even when you are sober, yeah. is terrifying. But I didn't, I knew that I, like, alcohol wasn't for me and I would get these blackouts and stuff like that. But I also was not there, you know? Yeah. And I think what's so important to address in the in-between is, like, there might be people that could end up there, but they don't have to if they adopt this lifestyle and nip it in the bud before it gets out of control. Yeah. You know, with smoking, you don't, I always say you don't wait until like, you know, one of your lungs collapses before you stop smoking. <laughs> you stop smoking because you know it's bad for you and you know that it's probably heading in that direction. And I also use the fire analogy, which is that like, if you see a fire in your house, you don't go, mm, it's only a little fire. I just wait until the whole house, house is in flames <laughs> and then I'll do something about it. But with alcohol, that's what we do. We're like, oh, well, I'll just wait until I'm that bad and you know we always say oh you're not that bad you're like okay but at what point do we keep waiting and then wait and then when I am that bad that's when we say okay now enough is enough because at that point it's going to be even harder to stop because you're more addicted to it than you were before so that's the the narrative that I like working on is the you do not need to get to a certain place with your drinking before you you know either call it a day or really reassess it and also to let yourself get to that point or let other people to the point where it can, not irreversible, but as in like it does become this kind of demon in your head. Yeah. For me, it was like, this is a destructive behavior for me because I know that on some level I associate alcohol as a gateway to dive into like oblivion, you know? Yeah. I've always been known to have a, an alter ego when I get drunk because that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. So, In terms of, I think people like drinking. People love drinking because their inhibitions go and they are able to dance freely. They think they're amazing at dancing. I know that I do. I'm probably (laughs) terrible. They're able to go up and talk to boys or girls or whoever. They're more confident. They think they're more themselves. So that is such an like a thing that draws us to it from a very young age. Is that is our way of kind of learning how to socialize. It's like a social lubricant. And so what is your way of sort of combating that when you don't have that vehicle to be more yourself? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I I like what you say about the demon. I always used to say that I had like a tequila fuel demon inside of me that just used to like come out. And then weirdly, I like started learning a lot about alcohol. I became really fascinated with alcohol and what it does and how it affects the brain and, and the fact that, you know, so it affects the prefrontal cortex which is the rational decision making part of your brain so that's why it's actually very hard to moderate so people always say to me like why aren't you sober curious why are you sober mm-hmm. and I always say because if I had one or two I probably could do it but I would have to work so hard at it harder to- yeah, because the way that alcohol actually affects your brain. So even if I said, I'm only having two, I'm only having two, my willpower then is probably quite right. I probably only am having two. But as soon as you then have those two, the way your brain is affected is the rational decision-making part isn't there. So your willpower is not the same as it was two drinks ago. You can't trust yourself two drinks in to stick to what you said you were going to do. It's <laughs> yeah. nice. So many of us are like, I'm only having one. And then, you know, eight hours later, you wake up and you're <laughs> cradling a McDonald's. So it's it's really hard. Oh, it gives me shivers thinking about it. <laughs> but you know, that's that's really interesting because I I kind of like so many people do. You experiment with every kind of way that you can not yeah. completely take it out of your life. And I do, like I just said, I I on occasion will have one. But like you say, if I'm at a dinner party or going to friends, I will not drink because it's yeah. so much easier 
to just be like, I don't drink. And for everyone to know that about me, then be like, oh, I have one. Because there have been so many times when I'm like, three is my max, three is when it goes wrong. And then I like get to three and try and stop. And like you say, I suddenly wake up in like, I don't know, Mongolia or something. (laughs) (laughs) How did I get here? I was only having three. You know what's really, I have nightmares about that all the time. Drinking drinking dreams are so common. I get them a lot. But Can we talk about drinking dreams? Yeah. I used to think they were the worst thing in the world. But now, do you know what? I Actually, this sounds really sadistic. I quite like them because I wake up and I panic with the fear. And then I realize that I haven't done that. And I'm like, that is such a good reminder. Because I I think especially I haven't drunk for like three years now. I think there probably could be a time when I'm like, oh, I could go back. I've probably nailed this moderation thing now. So they're a very... Very stark reminder for me of like, no, that's not what you want to do. That's I'm so glad that you have that because I've talked to quite a lot of people about it. Not necessarily, I guess, that maybe they're not sober or whatever, but no one gets it. And it kind of felt like, because mine are always kind of the same with slight different details. And it's that I'm out and I'm at a social event or a party or whatever, and I'm in a situation and someone's like, have a drink. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should. And then something happens that triggers me. And I'm like, okay, I'll just have one because it'll make me feel more comfortable. And then next thing I know, I am waking up somewhere. And there's just, like, I've just caused chaos. Yeah. People are like, oh, my God, do you know what you did last night? And then I wake up with a hangover. I honestly <laughs> wake up. My friend and I, he has it as well. He calls it a phantom hangover. Yeah. And my mind, it takes me like a couple of minutes to realize that that hasn't actually happened. And it does cause me a lot of uh, fear and, like, anxiety. But like you say, it's I think it's my brain's way because there were so many times, obviously, when I would give up for a bit and, like you say, be like, yeah. oh, I can handle I've got this down. Yeah, nailed I'm it. Like, yeah, nailed it. <laughs> and then it's like my brain being like, you haven't nailed it, by the way. So we just have to give you these reminders in case you ever think that you can handle <laughs> moderation. You cannot. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a gentle smackdown to us. <laughs> yeah, it's like a subconscious reminder of like, We're just reminding of this because we really don't want it to happen again. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. Mine are are a very similar vein. I've either upset someone, cheated on someone, ruined like my entire life, basically. (laughs) It is always chaos and destruction. That is the same. And I wake up with a real like, (gasps) and then I'm like, oh, no, it's fine. I'm okay. I'm three years sober. It's fine. kind of being sober curious that was another thing that I think I would find hard about being like sober curious as well is having to kind of explain it to people when people ask if why you don't drink or whatever or yeah. what your status with alcohol is yeah know. like you say well I can just say I'm sober now now people don't even really ask me if I'm going to drink so that's like an easier thing for me it's kind of almost yeah. more freeing in a sense that was the one of the main reasons that I said I'm totally sober was because otherwise I felt like every social occasion I would have to kind of combat those questions about are you drinking it this way are you doing that so that was the only other reason that I think that I probably chose the sober label over sober curious yeah and also some people Brits find like sober 
curious a bit obnoxious I think (laughs) (laughs) I like it I really like it's I'm a a big advocate of harm reduction so whether that's like dry months or you know drink free days or sober curious sober curious is harm reduction and you know I'm well aware that not everyone in the world wants to completely give up alcohol I've got all my friends drink all my family drinks my partner drinks so anyone being sober curious I get really excited by but I know some people kind of like roll their eyes at the term sober curious yeah I I quite like the term intuitive drinking Yes. Yeah. I like mindful drinking as well. I think mindful drinking kind of started here. I think Sober Curious kind of was a bit more US and has kind of made its way over here more. What is the sort of obstacle you find then in terms of like social events and things like that or have, because obviously the initial stages are so much harder because it's like you're having to reprogram not only your own beliefs around it, but also how you fit in to the world around you. So if you're identity piece was very much like a party girl having fun going out clubbing which I sounds like yours was and yeah. mine was as well to then like come back into society <laughs> in this very different way is quite h- hard and I think it puts a lot of people off because they're like well who am I without that and also they don't want to set other people off which it does yeah so what's your sort of tactic on navigating that yeah, it is really hard because I think everyone wants that like, oh, these are my magic tips and this is going to help you. And I think there are definitely like things that you can do like practical wise in terms of like, you know, getting a bit pickier with the kind of places you go to and the places you feel comfortable and things like that. But it really is just like a process. And the longer you do it, the easier it gets, which totally. we all like quick fixes, but unfortunately, it's not really the case. But the identity thing was massive for me because my entire persona was built upon party girl Millie my friend used to call me generous Millie because as soon as I had a couple of drinks I'd just buy everyone like oh you want you want McDonald's I'll buy it you want a Yegmom I'll buy it and uh, you know every meme I got tagged in was boozy every birthday present I got for about five years I could drink so everything about me was like tied up in alcohol so that was like a massive thing and I I really had to relearn okay, who am I? What do I like doing? You know, like real basic stuff of like, I just don't really know who I am without alcohol. So that was a process in itself. Like everyone thinks, oh, it's just stopping drinking. It's not, it's like relearning, you know, who you are. And then the other thing in terms of like socializing that I found is, you know, we call alcohol liquid courage. That's exactly what it is because when you drink it, it gives you confidence, it lowers your inhibitions. But the next day when that is taken away, that confidence is kind of taken away as well. So being sober has really built kind of like innate confidence Mm. in me because I go to things, I'm like, right, that was fine. You know, it wasn't the best, but it wasn't terrible. I, I didn't die. I'm okay. And then you kind of, you know that next time you can do it. And just over time, you start building a library of social situations that you have conquered. So I've done sober weddings. Yeah, I've done sober Hindus. I've done sober festivals. And and just the more and more you do them, the more real confidence you make. Because you're like, mm-hmm. I did that. That was me. It wasn't alcohol. I didn't need that. I did that. And then you start building this like real innate confidence. So it, it's more like a genuine confidence rather than an instant synthetic confidence that's in a Absolutely. bottle. And that those victories the next day never get old. Uh, well, maybe they will do, but three years in, I still wake up after a night out and I'm like, I'm so happy. Like <laughs> so happy in the morning. I know. But what one thing that I do find still challenging is like weddings I've always found super awkward. 
And like drinking for me was just like a such a way of like it basically making sure I was enjoying it and not feeling too self-conscious and like having all this weird small talk with people I haven't seen in ages. And then getting to a point where I just didn't give a shit and I was just like dancing shoeless on the dance floor, cutting my feet open, you know. And now like it's not that I miss that, but like I don't think I could ever get to that point. I don't think I don't know if I can sober when I'm that carefree. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting part of it, actually, is that like, because you know, everyone else's inhibitions are lowered, it's almost like you lower them yourself, because you're suddenly aware that everyone else probably isn't looking at you. So then you don't feel as self conscious. So the thing about alcohol is that like, it does lower those inhibitions, So you have to kind of learn to lower those naturally. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think you can get to that point. But I think it's an exercise in like, all sorts of different things. I think it's building your confidence outside of like drinking. I think it's doing those weddings over and over again until you've got to a point that you're happy to to feel less inhibited. I think it is learning for ourselves how to be less inhibited so that we don't need alcohol rather than kind of the other way around, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Because a lot of people think that if you give up alcohol, like your problems go you know, and that everything is just happy because obviously people kind of associate it with destruction, which it is. But then they think, well, if I give up alcohol, will everything just be like easy and breezy? And that's obviously not the case, is it? No, I mean, a lot of people do think, oh, it'll be like a magic wand. And in a way, sometimes it has. Yeah. But I always say, are you a Bake Off fan? No. Oh, okay. Well, I always say that like, when I was drinking, everything was like a hard slog. So it was like, I just had like a manual whisk and, you know, I I was always working to like keep up with things. And my life always felt like it was falling apart and it felt really difficult at all times. But sobriety for me is like a stand mixer that I can like plug in. It kind of just keeps things going. It's a lot more efficient. Things just work a bit better but you still have to make the cake for both. There's no like skipping. You can't just like pull it out of the fridge. You still have to do it. So you still have to do all those hard things. You still have to experience all those hard emotions. But for me, it is just a lot easier and a lot more manageable when I feel on top of things, a bit more on top of my emotions, the clarity's there. Like my reactions, I always used to just instantaneously react to things like like triggers or just anything. I I was a lot more like stressy and angry. And now I I just feel like with that clarity, you know, you have time to reflect on things more. And I mean, generally, you just have more time for like self-care, looking after yourself, all those kind of things. And I just feel like everything is more manageable. It doesn't go away at all. You still have really terrible days. You still have, you know, days where you think, oh God, would my life be better if I was a drinker? But ultimately I do I think I don't that- have those days. <laughs> I do not have those days. Oh my God. But more like, you know, like, oh, would it be more fun if I could just hit this fuck it button and, you know, go off? But I, I see think, what you mean. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. you, you like, it can almost feel like it is harder because you have to like sit with uncomfortable emotions and work through them rather than just being like here this is that so I can avoid them yeah there is that it is but on the whole everything is more manageable and and you know you just have a greater clarity and understanding I think of things it's so true you have to learn to sit in the discomfort of what you're experiencing because it doesn't stop bad life experiences happening it just means that 
rather than running away from them or diving into a bottle of tequila, you have to kind of face them head on. Yeah. And that can be challenging if you're used to avoiding them, which I definitely was. Oh, 100%. It's it's like avoiding anything. It doesn't go away. So you still have to you still have to go head on to it. But it is almost just with a massive hangover. (laughs) (laughs) It's it sounds a bit like I don't know, clinical, but it's actually just a lot more efficient processing your emotions when you don't drink because you're not delaying anything. You're like, okay, I see it. I'm going to tackle it head on. And, you know, then it's done. So it's, I think, easier. You have to get around to it eventually. It's not going away. You have to deal with it at some point. So sometimes the faster you deal with it and with a better, you know, clear head on, the easier it is, whether that's like heartbreak, grief, a terrible day at work. In terms of its correlation with mental health, which was something that I think was probably the most key component to me having to cut alcohol out of my life. It's something that I've struggled with and it was like putting uh, gasoline on the, on the fire a yeah. little bit. But then, you know, what was interesting is initially when I stopped, you d- I did feel a bit like a superhero for like eight months or something. And just, you know, I had so much energy. I was so productive. I felt really good in myself and my work. I was like on it. And then it kind of dissipates after a while. And then it becomes the new normal, which is kind of a weird thing. Now, I, you know, the idea of giving myself like a hangover every week, I don't know how I'd survive. (laughs) But um, in terms of the mental health part, I do still on occasion struggle with depression. And I always found that I was like, oh, that's annoying because I really (laughs) thought it would just go completely. It's definitely a lot more manageable. Yeah. And it doesn't come as regularly. But what has your experience been both on a personal level and also from what you learned from researching alcohol and its connection to um, the mind, I guess? Yeah, so I think I'm exactly the same as you. I had that kind of like six months of euphoria. So have you heard of the term pink cloud? No, So that's what they call it. They call that the pink cloud. So it's the first initial stages of sobriety or sober curiosity or cutting out alcohol, which is, you know, feelings of euphoria. You feel great because it's initially the the fog has lifted. um, And then, like you said, it becomes the new normal. And then you're like, oh, okay. And your pink cloud slowly dissipates. So you've been through your pink cloud now, which you can say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. But I, I was exactly the same. And then I kind of, you know started getting all those symptoms again and like you said it is more manageable when I was drinking I found it really hard to manage anything like that anxiety depression whereas when you don't drink I'm a lot more like reactive to it so I'll be like okay I know what I need to do I need to like need to have a nap I need to eat healthy today I need to do this I need to do that I'm a lot more clinical about kind of like managing it rather yeah. than wallowing, drinking tequila, coming out. And eating a Domino's. Exactly. I'm a bit more like, okay, I know what I need to do to kind of like push through this and, and make it slightly easier on myself. But in terms of like the mental health aspect, it's kind of twofold. So there is like the research that shows that, you know, it does exacerbate anxiety and depression. And the problem is drinking and mental health is very hard to untangle. They say it's a bit like chicken and egg. 
it's hard to diagnose which one kind of came first because a lot of us will drink because we feel anxious that will increase anxiety and then we drink because we feel anxious and it's the same kind of spiral so that makes it really oh, we're kind anxious of, because we drink you mean yeah yeah so yeah funny. yeah because drinking exacerbates anxiety and then we think to quell that anxiety we need to drink so you mm. you all of a sudden get into this like really quick cycle of it and the same with depression as well and there's you know lots of links with kind of self-harm and especially mixing alcohol and drugs can increase risk of like suicide and things like that so there's the real like chemical scientific evidence so that's like the direct effects of alcohol mental health and then for me there was a lot of like indirect effects as well so you know blackouts being one in that I couldn't remember portions of my night I couldn't remember what I said I couldn't remember what I'd done so that caused me a lot of anxiety because I was like oh god everyone hates me did I say this did I spill that secret have I ruined my chances at work and and all that and then also the indirect in terms of you know when I was hungover I avoided speaking to people so I would isolate myself I wouldn't go outside my curtains would be drawn for the weekend Mm. I would eat Domino's pizza for breakfast you know I I was financially very anxious because I'd spent all my money on Jaeger bombs the night before so there's kind of like twofold to it there is the real direct and then there's all these indirect things as well that come along with kind of drinking and blackouts and shame Exactly. So it's it's very twofold. So I think the thing that you definitely eliminate is that kind of like the consequences shame. of things. Yeah. And the, the shame bubble that was like constantly around me. I like I don't know about you, but I used to hate going to bars that I'd been to like the week before because I'd be like, oh, God, what if they remember me? And <laughs> I, I used to have to go back because I used to leave my handbag <laughs> in the club. Yeah. I mean, this is like way back in the day, but I used to pretty much every night <laughs> out I had the next day I would wake up without a handbag and sometimes without shoes and I'd have to go back to the nightclub and yeah. bounce or whoever would be like, oh my God, it's you again. Like, <laughs> so that that was definitely like one thing that I absolutely eliminated. So I always know where my handbag is and well, I say 99% of the time know where my handbag is now and that's just lovely, like not having to worry about those like checking my bank account and being like, what did I spend? Because I remember when I spent, it, that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, really rich now because I just spend it on my like, ASOS and things like that but it, it just means that I know where my money went where rather but than you like, don't care at the time no you don't you don't the weird thing about it is you don't really think beyond the night no so Professor David Nutt he used to be the I government love him. yeah he's amazing well, he was fired for what he believes was saying that alcohol was the most harmful drug in the world so his rationale is that you know, there are drugs that are more harmful to the user, but not necessarily to society. So like smoking doesn't really have much of a correlation with increased domestic violence. Yeah. Whereas alcohol does, alcohol affects crime, it affects sexual violence, domestic violence, all of those things it's tied up in. And even there was, um, I think it was a few years ago now, they released a, a report about how much we lose in the economy due to people being like hungover and not going to work. It was like 21 million or billion or something. It was a big number. But all those things that we don't really think about, I mean, it costs the NHS 3.5 billion a year. So that is, it's a lot of money. And all those things together make it the most harmful drug because it's Mm -hmm. not just a user, it's to society. What do you think then 
is the reason that it's so normalized? Because obviously it's a hugely profitable industry, but have you kind of gone back to the origins? Because like you said, with a lot of these beliefs, we don't really question where they come from or why we behave in that kind of way. But when you actually do a bit of research and dig a little deeper, you're like, huh, it's because a certain few are benefiting from this. Or, you know, I don't know, if you want to go into conspiracy lane that people want to keep us numbed out, or I don't know. <laughs> what, are your, what are your kind of thoughts on on that? Yeah, I do like that that one. I mean, the last chapter of the book is is kind of a bit of a activism call to action chapter. And I interviewed Richard Piper, the CEO of Alcohol Change for it. And we kind of talked about, you know, the alcohol industry and, and why are things the way things are. And they are a very powerful industry. It is super, super profitable. They can operate in a way that a lot of other industries cannot. It's a very interesting industry, put it that way. And they have a lot of like ties with kind of, they're very powerful. They've got a lot of money. They can influence governments. So say things like, you know, the the warning labels on, on cigarettes. People have been lobbying to get those on alcohol for a long, long time. And it's just been blocked and blocked and blocked. But, you know, the alcohol industry are very clever marketers. They manage to take things that we can do authentically. Like you said earlier about friendships, They've managed to kind of like take friendships and then I always say they've packaged it back to us as a bottle of rosé. Like it's... Yeah, but this is what I'm saying about actually like we don't as a society think about the consumer aspect to so many of our beliefs. Yeah. So what I wanted to ask you about is sober dating. Yeah. What has that experience been like for you? Because obviously that is one where people like you know, their entire dating lives have kind of revolved around the lubricant of alcohol. I So I have actually done drunk dating and I've done sober dating, so I feel like I have good comparison. But do you know what? My experience of sober dating was so positive. I went into it thinking everyone was going to think I was boring. I was never going to find anyone who accepted it. And actually, I was I was nicely proved wrong because I would say about 95% of people were really nice about it and a lot of people you know thought it was great that I had the confidence to come on a date sober I think they actually found it quite impressive if anything you obviously get like five percent of people who will say things I mean Catherine Gray says it best in her book which is that telling someone you don't drink is the ultimate dickhead detector which it is because Mm. as soon as someone says anything negative like well that's boring or that's that then you know that they're not going to be aligned with the type of person that you are so if anything it just saves you going on a date with someone who's probably going to be an absolute horror absolutely it really does like eliminate a lot of people quite quickly which is a is a blessing because sometimes as well when we drink it it just completely skews our our view on like what's really going on and how a person really is because you think everyone's wonderful when you're drunk. (laughs) I haven't had that many experiences of it, but there was one date that I went on where we did go to a bar and I made the mistake of not saying it before. And so when we got there, I was like, oh, I'm, I don't really drink, so I'm not going to be drinking anything. And he just was very perplexed by the whole thing. And he proceeded to drink an entire bottle of red wine without any food, <laughs> just to himself, but over the course of about 40 minutes. And I was like, even for me in my heyday, that's quite aggressive. Yeah. And um, he just would not let it go. And it is a bit of a dickhead detective, because if someone can't accept that about you and doesn't respect that that's a decision that you've made, then like, fuck him. 
Yeah. And I always tell them up front, not just for them, but for me, because yes. then I you can go into it feeling more comfortable. Because I, I think yeah. if I'd have waited to tell them, I would have been like stressing beforehand, which isn't how you want to go I into was. a date. You, yeah. You, you want to go in quite relaxed thinking, okay, well, I know that they know now. So I always told them straight away it, I tried to bring it up not too early like hey great to match with you by the way I don't drink but like <laughs> try and get yeah. it to come up naturally <laughs> but it's more important to me that someone is like more aligned with the kind of like lifestyle rather than actually having to be sober so as in like I want to be with someone that on a mm. Saturday you know might want to go for a morning walk or do something I think I'd find it very hard to be with a a party animal who like went out weekend after weekend and like spent a lot of time hung over that I think I would find difficult in a partner but having someone who drinks doesn't Definitely. bother me as long as kind of they're more on that sensible sober curious side yeah because it can also be quite challenging at the end of the night if you're like okay bye and you go <laughs> home and they kind of stumble in at 6 a.m you're like you stink <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not that fun um yeah so how old are you now 29 so 29 so this has actually been something that's happened to you over your lunar cycle I believe it is yeah. versus your your Saturn return your lunar return sorry which is like quite an important pre-Saturn return experience so you should have a pretty seamless Saturn return I'd say I think you I think you're all right <laughs> Apparently, I'm at the end of it now. Have you had an astrologer look at your birth chart? My friend's very into it, and she told me that I'm at the end of my Saturn return, apparently. Have you, have you felt it? I, th I think so, because I think there's been a lot of changes, like, this year, especially, like, after writing the book and then being like, okay, what do I want to do now? <laughs> so there's been a bit of a life kind of shake-up. Yeah, that's good. But, you know, the sort of... The philosophy behind it is if you listen to those sort of pings um, at that stage of life at like 26 and action them like you did, it makes this process a little a little easier. I decided yeah. to ignore them all. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to go with a standard stick my head in the sand approach and see how it all pans out. <laughs> and then it came for me like a punch in the face. But um, You got there eventually. It's fine. I got there eventually, exactly. <laughs> I got there eventually. But um, one thing actually I wanted to ask before I let you go is the friendship piece in mm. terms of the the process of like losing friendships over this time and the kind of grief in the morning we experience and how you know you can be completely aligned with someone at one point in your life and then over quite a short space of time just really feel disconnected from them and alcohol can be quite a big component in in that um what are your sort of thoughts and experiences on that subject yeah, I mean, I would definitely say like my friendships have changed, but it, it's kind of like we will do different things now. So I would say it's changed for the better, but definitely at the start, I had that real like, no one's going to want to speak to me. No one's going to want to do this. And I think I had to be quite proactive about it. I think, you know, going to bars and going to clubs is like a default. That's your default for a birthday. That's the default for any kind of celebration. So I started like suggesting other things that we might do, like let's go axe throwing or let's go whitewater rafting and, and actually kind of changing the things that we were doing as friends. 
and they really responded well to that so we do loads of like different stuff now as friends and I think that has only strengthened our bonds I think we operate as friends now on a different level because I think it's like in the same way you build that confidence. I think when you take alcohol out of a friendship, I think Mm -hmm. you can build those real like strong bonds because you know that you're not tied by alcohol. You know that there's something deeper that's tying you together. But I mean, there's a a whole chapter in the book on friendship. And I spoke to a lot of people actually who kind of said that they weren't as lucky with that experience and that some of their friends weren't really aligned with their, they're not drinking. And so they've had to like find new friends and learn to let go of those, which... I think he's okay because I think if someone doesn't support your sobriety, they don't support you. And it's a really tough lesson to learn. And I think there's probably people who haven't been as supportive of my sobriety and naturally they've just kind of like floated out of my life. But I think you have to be prepared that some people may not be aligned with it. And I think it's more as well that when you take it out, you might realize that actually that was the only thing holding you together. And then you have to kind of question, you know, is that the kind of friendship I want anyway? Because actually we're not really aligned on morals or values or lifestyle choices and things like that. So I think it can be hard, but I think this day and age, it's, it's so easy to find other communities and other friends. And especially in the sober community, like there's so many places you can go to find people who are kind of like aligned with, with what you like doing and things like that. So it is a shame, but that does happen sometimes. And I think once you step into that space and make that commitment to self, people, and I know this sounds a little bit woo-woo, but people just show up that are on the same like wavelength. Um, and by doing things, you know, that are of interest to you and then you meet people in a similar space and stuff like that. So actually, I, the friendships that I've made over the last year are some of the best friends in my life. And, you know, they don't know me as someone that ever drank. So it's like it's not even a thing, which is kind of quite nice, actually. Yeah, it's quite nice as well, I think, to have friends who have no idea about like that part of you. I've got friends yeah. that I've met through doing this who are my absolute best friends. And we do talk about like our past selves and we do do it with a sense of humour. But also I'm like, I'm quite glad that you've never seen me in that state. And even yeah. like, my boyfriend has only ever known me as a non-drinker. I didn't know him before. So that's quite lovely to yeah, have yeah, that like, yeah. fresh start, which is nice. I know that's that's the same for me actually my best friend's always like I just when I hear about this version of you I'm just like I can't get my head around it right well yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of glad you never saw it <laughs> anyway Millie thank you so much for joining me it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and I hope that we get to have you back on the podcast soon Oh, thank you so much for having me we need to we need to see each other in real life as well when the world opens I loved having this conversation with Millie and I always enjoy having conversations around alcohol and exploring a more sober curious life. And, you know, like I mentioned, the way that I approach it is you don't have to suddenly go completely teetotal. I think it's just about exploring your relationship with alcohol and whether that is something that needs to be addressed. Lots of you message me about this privately and, you know, I'm always here if anyone has any questions around the subject, as is Millie. So I hope that it inspires some of you to live a more sober, curious life yourself. You can find Millie on Instagram at Millie Gooch or at the Sober Girl Society. And her book, The Sober Girl Society Handbook, is available at all good bookshops. And if you would like a reading with our Saturn Returns astrologer, Nora, you can find her at Stars Incline. 
We have a live show coming up on the 27th of May where I will be speaking with the wonderful Catherine Gray, who Millie and I discussed in this episode. So if you haven't got a ticket yet, there's still time to get one. The show is happening on the 27th of May. Simply head to dice.fm and search Saturn Returns. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could share it with your friends or anyone you think might find it useful. And if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. Saturn Returns is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Hannah Barrell and the executive producer is Kate Taylor. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, you're not alone. Goodbye.